So just last week, we took the family out to see the fireworks, staring out into the sky, and uh, it's getting darker, slowly getting darker, and I, and I think I see a planet. I know you can see about, a, a, I don't know, is it five or four or five planets? I don't know how many planets we can see from Earth, but I, I know you can see, I'm, I think I see a planet. I think it's Mars. It's kind of red, unless it's my imagination. I think it's Mars. I know you can see Mars from Earth with the, with the naked eye. And so I'm like, hey, guys, I think that's a planet. Oh, cool. Which planet is it? Mm-hmm. I don't know. And then it starts to get a little darker, and then I'm like, oh, is that a star? Because maybe that, no, is that a planet? And I just realized in that moment, I don't think I would do very well in that show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? I was like, this, this wouldn't go well at all. But I'll tell you, there's one thing about staring into the expanse of stars is you feel really small really fast, don't you? If you've ever been out in the country where it's very dark and very clear, or if you've had the privilege of being uh, in a prairie province when it's very clear and very dark and the sky is utterly massive and you feel utterly minuscule, it's unbelievable. Uh, Today, we're going to read from Psalm 8. We've been going through the Psalms this a number of the psalms this summer. This morning we're going to look at Psalm 8. There's different genres of psalms. This is a psalm where David is staring into the massive expanse of the sky, contemplating God's greatness, thinking about his smallness, and he writes this lyric, and this is a praise psalm. Most of the psalms are psalms of lament, because they're psalms of uh, human experience and and. It's hard being a human, and David wrote about his trials, his hardships, his sufferings. And so most people identify with the Psalms of Lament because pain and suffering is common to human experience. This psalm is a psalm of praise, where it's got a completely different tone. Psalms of praise lift the soul like the crescendo of a John Williams score. I mean, that's what these psalms of praise do. That's what they're like. It's like that moment when, uh, the, when the key change happens or everything uh, is enhanced and by the, you know, the brass section of the orchestra and then all the hairs stand up on the back of your neck, that's Psalm 8. So we're going to go to Psalm 8. We're going to see the goodness of God's love and grace towards us in this, starting in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And you've given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. So David looks up into the night sky. And he thinks about the bigness of the universe and the smallness of humanity. The bigness of God and the smallness of little David. And then he starts asking very philosophical questions. They come, out of, they come out in the psalm. He starts thinking about why he's here and how he got here and where his life is going. Those are the big questions. 
And that's precisely where he goes. When you stare into the stars and the heavens long enough and you consider the magnitude of the ever-expanding universe and the smallness of man, you start asking these kinds of questions. That's precisely what David does. And then, so if you break the psalm down, David gets into three majestic categories, categories of what we call systematic theology. Creation and redemption and restoration, they're all there. We're going to get to them in a second. Kids, if you look down in your notes... This, the, this fancy word called systematic theology, you'll see in your notes as uh, the, 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 you know, the three categories of God's awesomeness. That's what they say in your notes there, okay? So the three categories of God's op- awesomeness, they're this, and, the, and you find them all in the psalm here, because David alludes to all of them. The first one, kids, you look at there to fill the blanks, is that God created everything in perfection, He created everything in perfection. The second thing is God offers redemption. And the third thing is God promises total restoration. Those are the three categories of God's awesomeness. It's what we call systematic theology. God created everything in perfection. Right? Man's sin brings damnation. So what does God do? He doesn't run forward and just obliterate the earth in Genesis 2. God created everything in perfection. Man's sin brought damnation. So God offers redemption in Christ and in the end spoiler alert he promises total restoration these categories of God's awesomeness are the backbone of of Psalm 8 and David is just contemplating the goodness of God and the savior that is to come though he is he doesn't know it's 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 Christ but he's anticipating the Christ and he's anticipating God's saving work and so so kids when we say systematic theology what we mean is, and we say this psalm is breaking all these things down, what we mean is every story in the whole Bible there are smaller stories telling one big story. That's what systematic theology is. That's why every Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, you come to church. And I keep going to all these different texts, and I keep showing you how they're all playing into the big meta-narrative. How many of you kids would read, you know, book series? So if you read Ramona, there's eight Ramona books. And all of the Ramona books are all playing into the meta-arc of the story of Ramona. If you read Madeline, there's six Madeline books, and they all play into that. If you read Harry Potter, there's seven Harry Potter books. They're all playing into this story about Harry Potter. If you read Anne of Green Gables, there's eight books. If you read the series of unfortunate events, or you're watching it on Netflix, there's 13, there's 13 books. Right? If you read Lord of the Rings, there's 68 books. I'm just kidding, but it seems like there's, there's, so, there's so much walking in the Lord of the Rings. Anyways... I'm like, you can't fly one of those eagles. This would be like a pamphlet, you know, those big eaters. Take it to Mordor, drop the thing in, it's over. Anyway, sorry. Um, I just lost all the Tolkien fans. That's it. This guy's a heretic. Relax. Okay, so, so that's what it is. Is Every story is feeding into the meta arc of, of redemption. And so Psalm 1, it starts out in verse 1. Or I'm sorry, Psalm 8. It starts in verse 1. If you look at verse 1, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in the whole earth. You've set the glory above the heavens. In Hebrew... O Lord, our Lord, is Adonanehu Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. So it, it could also be translated this way. And kids, if you look in your notes, you'll see the blank there. It could also be translated when he says, O Lord, our Lord, he could be saying loving promise keeper. Because the covenant name of God is that he's the loving promise keeper. Why do I say loving promise keeper? Because that's how everything was created. David is looking at the creation. He's marveling at it. How did it all get here? And the answer is love. What spun the universe into motion? Love. What's the core 
of existence before sin and, and damnation and corruption enter the picture. Look, a Trinitarian God of love, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit was complete within himself and he created everything ex nihilo with no help from nothing, which means everything that is not God was created because it was God's way of saying, I got to share the love. I'm already complete within myself. I don't need anything. We're, I'm already enjoying an eternal state of love within the three persons of the Godhead. How do I share the love? The way to share the love is to create and to expand. And so therefore, everything since the beginning of time, the story of the Bible from Genesis 1, is God trying to give everything that is God to everything that is not God. God of love. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name that David uses the covenant name of God. O loving promise keeper who spun the worlds into existence, how great is your name. And this is the good news. That the universe did not come into existence from some mindless, purposeless process of molecules kind of coming in together and inexplicably moving themselves. No, purposeful love. We begin there with that beautiful origin story and we learn a lot about our God and we learn a lot about ourselves. Because this lyric is intended, as you go through the psalm, to captivate the imagination and captivate the heart. Just like every lyric. I mean, every song that's ever written, why are you writing lyrics and scratching them out and rewriting new lyrics? Is because you're trying to captivate the imagination, you're trying to captivate the heart. So David is preaching just like every songwriter is preaching. And David's preaching his message just like every song is preaching a message of some kind in terms of unfolding, uh, you know, the lyric. And so life was created from the God of grace and our soul is given new life by God's love and grace. And at the, at the end of everything that God created, he will recreate it when there's love and grace and then we will enjoy eternal life through God's love and grace. That's the flow of Psalm 8, right? Spoiler alert, it, it ends the way it begins and that teaches us something. Verse 1 and verse 9 are the same. That's a very intentional literary device in the Hebrew to begin and end something exactly the same. It's a, it's a powerful lyric, and there's a reason why it goes there. So in verse 1, he looks at the stars. In verse 2, we go from something that's very big to something that's very small. Babies and infants. It's quite a leap. Look at verse 2. He says, Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength, or you've perfected praise. Why? To silence the enemy. So interesting. First, David considers how God's power and glory is revealed in the most majestic things. And then he considers how God's glory is revealed in the weakest of things. Oh, that is the gospel. God's glory being declared in the weakest of things. Let's, let's watch this. How does this play out? God using uh, weak things to display his strength is all throughout the scriptures. You're going to find it in every in every book of the Bible. God using weak things to declare his glory and his strength. 1 Corinthians 1.27 says that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and he's chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. Well, how did he do that? Well, this verse is applied to Jesus. Jesus actually applies it to himself. All the Psalms are fulfilled in Christ. All the Psalms are ultimately about Christ, and then they apply to us in the sense that we want to imitate Christ. But Jesus, in Matthew 21, he's entering into Jerusalem before the crucifixion. And he's riding on a colt. And how many of you kids remember they were waving palm branches? And anybody remember what they were yelling? They were yelling, Hosanna, right? You remember that? Well, Hosanna is a way of saying, praise be to the one who came to save us. It was, a, it was messianic. It was, it was uh, Davidic. You know, it was, it was like 
it was a big deal that the kids were yelling this. And that's why the Pharisees got so angry. The religious leaders were like, hey, you're, ta- you're, you're praising this guy like he's the king. And you're praising this guy not only like he's the king, but like he's God. And Jesus turns to the religious leaders and he says, out of the mouth of babes, you've perfected praise. Silence the voice of the enemy. And when Jesus quotes Psalm 8 about himself, Jesus teaches us a little something about who he is and who the religious leaders are. He quotes Psalm 8 about himself, O P.S., I'm God, and because you, you're rejecting me as God, you're an enemy of God. Look back at Psalm 8. He, out of the mouth of babes, perfects, perfects praise. Why? To silence the voice of the enemy. Jesus quotes that about himself going to the crucifixion. He goes, no. And he silences the voices of the enemy. And then ultimately, he, he silences the voice of the enemy, which we'll get to in a minute. But is there anything more weak and vulnerable than an infant? No, there's not. We baptized some infants this morning. There's nothing more weak and vulnerable than an, and dependent than an infant. And what did the great God of the universe, the great God of the cosmos, which is where this psalm started, how did he come? He didn't ground pound in a bolt of lightning and show up like Thor, superhero landing. That's not how he came. He came in this in vulnerability and weakness and dependency upon his heavenly father all his days, Jesus Christ, who didn't count his divinity as deity with God, his equality with God as something to be grasped and hung on to. So he let it go. And he came in the form of a bond servant, right? This is what we see. Is there anything more vulnerable than this? The strong God made himself weak. He came to save the weak. He died on the cross like one who was weak because weak people are the only kind there are. And you say, I'm not weak, I'm a very strong person. You're also made of dirt, though. I mean, I'm, I'm speaking cosmically. We're weak. Yeah, but I don't think I'm a weak person. The average lifespan globally is 71. I'm not trying to depress you, and I'm not being morbid. I'm just being rational. You know, if there is no God of the expanse of the universe, I'm such a strong person. You're, you're, what, cosmically speaking, our life expectancy, we're like fruit flies. I'm strong. Okay, you're still made of dirt, though. And so here we find in the gospel, the strong God comes and he makes himself weak. So that in his death, he dies like one who is weak, so that we could be united to one who is strong. So that in our weakness, we can say we're strong. That's the gospel. That united to Christ in the midst of our weakness, that we can find rest in saying that we're strong. We are not, but in him we are united to him. And he lifts our eyes off of our smallness and onto his greatness, like the great expanse, which is where Psalm 8 begins in the beginning. It's tremendous. So Jesus comes in this way. How else did he silence the voices of the enemy by, by coming as weak? Well, again, the cross is a symbol of shame and embarrassment and failure. And God chose that symbol to to be the symbol for all of his children. The ancient Roman cross. Embarrassment, guilt, shame, rejection. And we wear it like jewelry. Because when Jesus died as one who is weak for all of our sin, and he took all of God's, uh, he took all of God's judgment for our sin, and he took the guilt of our sin on himself, and he said to us, united to Christ, you're declared righteous. Because that happened, the cross is like God staring into the face of darkness and saying, shut your mouth. And that's what happened. 
silence the voice of the enemy and the avenger, using the weak things to confound the wise. David didn't know that when he wrote this, of course, right? The, the Bible has dual authorship. Written by real humans, for real, the Bible doesn't shy, shy away from that. David is writing, David is really writing, but, but everything that is written in the Bible is infallible and inerrant because it's being superintended by the Holy Spirit. And so David is writing this, and Jesus, going to the cross, applies this to himself because he knows what God is going to do to silence the voices of darkness forever. And so when, then when you look at verses 3 and 4, David says, When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars, which you set in place, what is man? What are we that you would even be mindful of us? Right? Aren't we just specks in the universe? Physically, yes. Relationally, no. Yes, if you stare into the stars. We are specks in the universe, physically. But relationally, you consume the mind of God. He's not thinking, oh, I wonder how Alpha Centauri's doing. He's consumed about how you are doing. In the sense that he loves and cares for you, he's mindful of you. And David is blown away by this. David is staring into the cosmos and going, what that you care and who am I? Who is man? He's blown away by it. The vastness and the intricacy of the cosmos, it declares God's glory. And maybe you're here, you're struggling with this, you're saying, oh my goodness, you know, I'm a person of science, uh, and I'm thoughtful and intelligent and educated, and all this talk of God creating the cosmos is frustrating me. Listen, I, can I humbly and directly ask you to consider that David is speaking to what science is continually discovering. There are brilliant minds who are academic and educated and who have come to the conclusion that there is more than the natural order. So, for example, Sir Isaac Newton's first law of motion is that something has to move something else. It thinks that just don't move themselves. The, the laws of physics, Stephen Hawking talks about the laws of physics do not act, or he, sorry, the late Stephen Hawking says the laws of physics do not act lawlessly. And so we've got all of these sorts of things that we can consider, I think, about the universe. In fact, in 1988, Stephen Hawking wrote a book called A Brief History of Time, and in it, this is what he conceded. He's a smart guy, we all agree, right, that the man had a brain. Okay, brilliant. This is what he wrote. He said, even if there's only one possible unified theory, <clears throat> it's just a set of rules and equations. What is it that breathes life into the rules and equations and makes a universe for us to describe? The overwhelming impression of the cosmos is one of order. The more we discover about our universe, the more we find that it is governed by rational laws. You still have the question. Why does the universe bother to exist? And if you like, you can define God to be the answer to that question. 1988, Stephen Hawking. Listen, he wasn't a man of faith and he didn't place his faith in God. He just kept asking the question, why? And the reason I'm bringing this up for you to consider, if you're choking on this, because I'm spending so much time talking about God spinning everything in the motion, is this. Once you leave 
the world of examining what, I- what exists, you've left the world of science and you've entered the world of philosophy. Right? Anthony Flew is the most published philosopher of the last uh, 50 years. And Dr. Anthony Flew, who is a professor of philosophy at Oxford, said, the moment you stop examining what is and you asked why, you've left f- science and you have entered philosophy, and he should know. So I'm inviting you to consider that David, in this psalm, is wondering at something, the God of creation who's breathing fire into the rules and the equations that Stephen Hawking was asking the provoking question about. So when you get to verse uh, 5, David goes on and he says, what is man? Are we specks in the universe? Well, physically, yes, but relationally, no, because you're mindful of us. Your mind is full of us. That's what the word mindful means. How many of you kids in here, if I say the word hamburger, what are you thinking right now? Be honest. Raise your hand if you just thought McDonald's. If you just, if you came here. Raise your hand. Anybody think McDonald's? Yeah. No children thought McDonald's, but I'm seeing lots of adult hands, which only proves that our lying children need the grace of God. Okay, so... When something is top of mind, when you say, or if I say to you, and I, I think what we just learned here is that all of you have much more sophisticated palates than me, and then I projected my juvenile palate on all of you, so please forgive me, don't write letters, okay? So if I say to you, hamburger, and the first thing that comes in your mind is McDonald's, that's what you call top of mind. In marketing, they call it top of mind unaided, which is like the, the pinnacle of marketing that you just say the pr- thing and people think the product, Right? Like nobody says tissue, everybody says Kleenex. That's, that's, top, of, that's top of mind mark, genius marketing, right? David is saying, in a cosmos where physically speaking we're specs, relationally we're top of mind. And so then he goes on in verse 5 and he says, and being top of mind, God made us a little lower than the angels. Notice the wording of the lyric. It does not say he made us a little higher than the animals. It says a little lower than the angels. A little lower, in the Hebrew, it actually is Elohim. A little, lower, a little lower than Elohim, which is uh, one of the names of God. A way of saying that there's God and then there's man. And that makes us very uncomfortable. It actually made the translators very uncomfortable, which is why a lot of the translators went, ah, angels. And then you study the Hebrew and you're like, well, it could mean angels, but it could also mean God. It's, it's faithful to the Hebrew to say he made man a little less than God. I think there were some people that were uncomfortable with that. No, 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 we're going to go with angels. It's still faithful, and it is. But I'm just pushing the envelope here this morning because I need you to see there's a disparaging difference between a little, more, a little higher than the animals and a little lower than God. Do you see that gap? Do you see the difference? To borrow from Brian Regan. So David is, David is blown away by this. He's absolutely blown away by it. And this speaks of us being image bearers. And this is our basis for saying that everyone and every person from every culture and every class system and every cre- from every creed has intrinsic value. This is the basic for the Christian ethic about the sanctity of life. Everyone is an image bearer of God. This is our basis for acting in civility in the city with those who disagree with us and are, have opposite views and opposite ethics to our ethics. This is the basis for our civility. This is the basis for giving dignity with all of those with whom we disagree. Seeing everyone as an image bearer of God is the basis for ethics about human life and why we, according to the scriptures, regard life as sacred from conception 
to the grave. It isn't popular to say that today, but I'm not, I'm not, my job is not to stand up here and tell you what I think. I'm telling you what the scripture says, is that if man has been made a little lower than Elohim, then that means that he's, got the, he's been created the image bearer of God, and that has implications. It means that if we're an image bearers of God, we're not a random collocation of molecules who get to decide how and when we would like to cease to exist. It means we're image bearers of the God of life, the God who understands firsthand human suffering, the God who came firsthand into the greatest of human suffering, the God who offers us grace in our suffering and in the end will eradicate all suffering and then he will raise us from death itself to enjoy eternal life without suffering. Image bearers of God. It forms our ethic for how we relate to all those who do not share our ethic with dignity and grace. And then he goes on into verse 6 and he, just, he, he talks of humanity perfected. Look at the way he describes humanity perfected. It, it makes you think of Genesis 1 before sin entered the picture. He says, he will have dominion over the works of your hands, over all creation. You, you'll, you have put everything under his feet. You know, the, he, the writer of the book of Hebrews quotes that verse and applies it to Jesus. Like I said, all the Psalms are about Jesus. But the, the Hebrew writer quotes that one and he applies it to Jesus. In other words, saying, listen, at the end of everything, Jesus will put everything right. Everything that sin has done will be undone. We love for things to be undone. We love stories of, of redemption and things being undone. In the news, when there's something horrible happening and, it turns, and it's undone, we love it. Because deep in the human psyche, we want the sin and the evil and the atrocities of the world in which we live in to be undone. Right? Everybody understands this. Everybody was leaving the last, uh, you know, uh, Marvel MCU movie, The Infinity Wars, when, you know, all of these, you know, scores of these popular characters died. And uh, they're like, people are like, oh my goodness. And I left the theater like, I was like, they're all coming back. Every one of them's coming back. Number one, because there's a lot of money to be made. But number two, because everybody loves stories. We're, we're obsessed with resurrection as a culture, which that ironically doesn't believe in the resurrection, but we're obsessed with resurrection. And so, Dave, and so this, te- this, uh, this verse here speaks of a perfected humanity. So if you read it in the context of day-to-day and you say, oh, well, that doesn't seem to describe the world and what's going on and which spiritual levers do we need to be pulling and pushing, hey, listen, we are to go into the culture and be image bearers in the culture, bless the city, and live in such a way that your God-given gifts are a blessing to the city and to your neighbors. That's our, that's our call. We are now participants in the restorative program, but we're not the ones driving the restorative program. We have folks on both ditches. We have our triumphal, the, the triumphantists who are like, take over the culture and make it all Jesusified. And I've read the end of the book, and that's not how it works out, so relax. But over in the other ditch, people have said, well, that doesn't seem to be working, so let's go over here and live in a holy huddle, build a really great church, live inside it, and make sure that our kids don't play out in the mud puddle of the world where they're definitely going to get dirty. And that's ridiculous, too. Both of those are the, op- are the wrong ends of the spectrum. Christ came and redeemed us so that we would be agents of this restoration, though he is the one that is ultimately bringing it. And so you've got this uh, picture of everything being undone. There will be divine judgment for every sin, and there will be divine mercy for those who trust in Christ, who has already taken a judgment for every sin. And so we are encouraged as we come to the end of the psalm, because we're not just specks in the vastness. We're not just 
you know, stardust in the universe. God is mindful of us. And an infinite God who is transcendent over you, who has particular care for you, will overwhelm you if you'll contemplate that and stop and rest in that. And that's what David's experiencing. That's why he writes this lyric. And that's why we've given the gift of the Lord's Day so that we can stop and rest and marinate in how good this is and the good news of this. This is why God has said, don't treat Saturday or don't treat Sunday like Saturday volume two. Stop and rest and reflect. That's what your soul needs. It's a gift. The Lord's Day is a gift. God isn't some insecure deity who's like, bow down and worship me because I really need your worship. I created, you know, I created you to worship me because he was insecure. He created us from love and we are created for worship to a God who is infinitely secure. And our worship does not change God, it changes us. And so we're given this gift and in the same way that David marveled and he found great rest in his smallness, that's the Lord's Day. Psalm 8 is like, uh, it shows the, the Lord's Day in a microcosm. Whereas we reflect in his greatness, our hearts are restored and we find great rest even in our own smallness. And we come to the final verse of verse 9 where it ends the way it began. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It ends the way it began because all of history is going to end the way it began. This psalm is a microcosm. That's why I said kids earlier, systematic theology, that really big word, which kind of means all the stories are leading to the big story. It's all ending in the same place. What God created in the beginning, he is restoring in the end. And so the psalm reflects that. It be, everything began in majesty, and everything is going to end in majesty. And Christ's enemies will be his footstool, which is a way of saying that at the cross, Christ ensured that one day death would have its funeral, and at Christ's return, death is going to have its funeral. And Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior of our souls, who paid for all of our sin, puts his feet up on death. Like we put our feet up on a coffee table. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Amen. Let's pray.